part of my thinking at the time was, what does it mean to be someone who's gone through a shock? What does it mean to survive? And then what will resilience look like for my family, for my neighborhood, for my community? And I began reading all the stuff I could find, everything, economic literature, great literature, public policy stuff on disasters. And honestly, it was pretty bad. It was pretty, it's pretty bad and in several ways. Hello and welcome to the Crisis Conflict Emergency Management Podcast. I'm Kyle, your host, and in this episode, we will be exploring the role of social capital in disaster recovery. Our guest, Professor Daniel Aldrich, is a full professor and director of the Security and Resilience Studies Program at Northeastern University, who specializes in Japanese politics, nuclear power, NIMBY politics, and disaster recovery. Professor Aldrich has extensively researched the impact of social capital on disaster recovery and will be sharing his insights on how communities can build resilience through strong social ties. We will be discussing all about social capital, the strategies for building social capital in communities, and the role of government in fostering social capital itself, the impact of social media and technology, and the relationship between social capital and preparedness, and much more. So thank you for joining us today, Professor Aldrich. It's nice to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. So let's start off with a really sort of easy question. What is your version of your origin story or your inspiration for becoming interested in this specific aspect of disaster recovery? Yeah, until 2005, I hadn't really thought about disasters at all. I lived, a, I think, a pretty centered North American life. But then we made the, the choice to move down to New Orleans, Louisiana in July of 2005. We had about six pretty good weeks down there. We had a new home. It was my first academic jobs. We, we bought furniture. We bought a car. We filled our house with stuff. We had guests over. And then the very last weekend in August, we discovered that we had moved into Hurricane Alley when Hurricane Katrina arrived. And we evacuated with everyone else Sunday morning, I believe the 28th of August, if I remember to correct the date. And our home, our car, my hard drives, our paper records, everything we owned was destroyed. And of course, I was supposed to begin working at Tulane University that Monday, as my kids were supposed to begin school that Monday. And of course, that Monday never came for those of us in New Orleans. So I never actually began working in 2005 at Tulane. I had a lot of free time between that time in August and January 2006 when Tulane did reopen. And part of my thinking at the time was, what does it mean to be someone who's gone through a shock? What does it mean to survive? And then what will resilience look like for my family, for my neighborhood, for my community? And I began reading all the stuff I could find, everything, economic literature, great literature, public policy stuff on disasters. And honestly, it was pretty bad. It was pretty, it's pretty bad and in several ways. And we can talk about that if you're interested. But what I noticed was everything that I had been going through as a person was not at all in the literature that I was reading. And all my naive assumptions about what would save me and my family, what would get us back in our feet, none of that happened. So I had this really naive not notion that somehow FEMA would come in like a, a knight in a white horse with a big check, like in, Clare, in Clare, the published uh, clearinghouse, right? PCH. They'd come this big check, 10 feet long and say, Daniel, go out and buy all your stuff that you lost here, go out and do that again. So in terms out, FEMA actually rejected our application for aid. We had to apply by fax machine. I think we applied about 15 times that fall. It's a very long story that did not work out well. The other naive assumption I had beyond the state was the market. My wife and I were just about to get our insurance activated. And unfortunately for us, it did not activate in time. So we actually had neither market coverage nor state coverage for all the losses that we incurred. And of course, my kids and I have no home at this point. We have no place to stay. We are wondering what's going to happen to us in this moment when all seems lost. Begin getting all these texts and phone calls and emails from people that we've never met. Friends of friends, friends of faith-based organizations, people who've heard about our story, offering us everything from a place to stay, which we got offers from across the country, Denver, Philadelphia, Colorado, North Carolina, Boston, where we came back to, 
and also places to work and places for my kids to go to school. And none of that came from the state or from the market. All of those were through what we call social capital or social ties, right? The ties to people that I knew didn't know so well. I remember several times people at classroom fundraisers for our family. People were selling cookies up in Detroit, right? Help us be able to pay our rent in our first apartment afterwards. So these kind of moments when you think, you know, none of the literature I was reading talked about this at all. Everything was about, you know, state involvement and private sector insurance and all this kind of stuff. And you wondered, why is it that the literature and my experiences are just so dissonant? And that really began this work for me. So I immediately, as I figured the story out over those several months of watching my own life unfold, I began applying for grants. Uh, and one of them was to go to Japan and India and study both in an industrialized country and still an industrializing country. Did these ties make a difference to people who have a lot of money, some money or no money? And that really began my first book called Building Resilience. That was way back. Oh my gosh, that must have been in 2012 and that, was, that came out eventually, but that was my first work. And ever since then, I've been obsessed with this concept that we often focus on things like seawalls or early warning systems or the newest tech device or what my phone can do for me during a disaster. When at the end of the day, the vast majority of things that I think matter have nothing to do with external agency technological stuff or broad, fancy, bangy new seawalls really about, you know, our neighbors, our neighborhoods, our connections. I mean, that's absolutely both devastating and fascinating, right? In terms of the outcomes, but absolutely devastating in the fact that you have to live through that and thousands of people live through that. And and so that actually started your pass down this aspect of, you know, the social ties and social capital amongst our communities. And I think that's also very interesting because what we have seen if I could correlate that in some way, a lot of the work that we do is sort of in international space, post-conflict spaces and things like that. We see a lot of the same approach in terms of social capital, especially in communities that have gone through their own version of disaster, in this case, conflict, and are having, you know, have have lost all these sort of, uh, how could I say, lost all these sort of mechanisms, the things that we have on a daily basis, all these sort of lifestyle things that we have in terms of phones and data and internet and ATMs and, and everything else that goes along with that has all been sort of taken away and they're living in through, you know, sort of a very difficult situation. So when you were going through this research, you went through this period, you dived into this topic, you mentioned the documentation, the research that you found was, was vastly different than your own experience. Can you explain that a little bit more in terms of what you were finding and then what was driving you like, what was the difference between what you found and then what you were sort of identifying today? Yeah. So, so one of the literatures I remember reading was about economics, the economics of recovery. And the big focus here was on things like wealth, right? And outside aid. To what degree did you get money? To what degree did you have money beforehand? And economists have all kinds of language for this, right? I can't remember consumption and a few other sort of very fancy terms for describing how people deal with the fact they don't have any money. And what I was noticing, especially in India, where people had no money to begin with, was that what was really helping people in India as well after the Indian Ocean tsunami had little to do with, you know, were they wealthy beforehand or not or whatever, but rather what kind of connections they had. And we had some really cool ways of measuring this. For example, attendance at weddings was one of the things I remember vividly. In Japan, we even went back in time to the 1920s and find evidence there on interactions between people in the community, the way they'd interact with each other and the government. So that this wasn't a question of, you know, if you had more money, you bounced back more easily, right? What we we're finding instead was to what degree did your experiences have you intersect with people who live nearby? You know, we may call those bending, you know, bonding and bridging ties and people in power and authority above you call linking ties. Just to talk about it a little bit. So we try to figure out, you know, it's not that every connection that we have is the same. If you go through your phone, if you go through your Facebook connections, right? Some people you talk with every day, 
think about a, a, an aunt, an uncle, a sibling, a parent, right? The, well, people really close to you, that's called bonding social capital. And typically, by the way, they look like you and sound like you. So if you're a fast-talking white guy from the Northeast like me, that probably a lot of my friends look and sound like me. Bridging ties in contrast are those to people who are different than us. Ethnically, religiously, culturally, maybe they think differently than we do. And often we make those ties to places like workplaces or schools or bocce ball clubs or the Armenian Friendship Society, those kind of places. And then linking ties are vertical ties between me and someone in power and authority. And what I've tried to do in my research is to show it's not a question of how much money that you have or had before the disaster. And again, it's not a question of having insurance. By the way, that's a whole different discussion. You know, in New Orleans, only about a third of the survivors of New Orleans actually had insurance. And that's pretty much the same thing around the world, right? In many cases, the amount of insurance coverage or insurance penetration, as it's called, is very low, right? So we have all these technological or market-based solutions, but really it's this distribution of bonding, bridging, and linking ties that can very strongly help correlate with the way things go. And there's really good research that we've done and other teams have done on this question. Even during COVID, for example, we have information showing how the ways that our neighbors and I interact help keep out COVID, right? Are we listening to the authorities? Are we masking? Are we physically distancing? And then if someone does get sick, their outcome means, does a neighbor help them get to the hospital? Does a neighbor notice they're coughing too much? That doesn't sound healthy. Let's, let's get you over there right now. Or oh, we need someone to get you the medicine from the store. I'm going to see the yes anyway, right? So I found was this big gap between, again, the economic literature on what people seem to think mattered, which was in a sense just wealth, right? Having money or not, versus the actual outcomes of people that I, I talked to and what I went through myself. And then I did these you know, large-scale surveys in India and Japan, trying to understand it's not just a question of wealth, not a question of population density. You know, These things are really being driven by the kind of connections that you have before the shock begins. It's really fascinating. And we often talk about in the emergency management community, and as you know, like all disasters are local, right? And so we know that's like our theme. That's like sort of our mantra that we talk about all disasters are local, first responders are local, don't wait for you know FEMA to come in and like you said, night on a white horse and try and save everybody and do everything because obviously they can't and nor should they. But the really interesting perspective when I hear you discuss this is like, we've known this for a long time. Why haven't we been exploring this before you started your work? I mean, if you found the research there and it's all sort of economics based and and models based. I mean, why have we not explored this in the past? This doesn't seem like it's some revelatory sort of situation here. I mean, have we just forgotten a lot of the things of the past? I found, you know, this is, I like to put, point back to the founders, right, of these ideas. There are two articles that I had to literally dig through archives. One of them was written by Nakagawa and Shah. I believe that was from the mid 1990s. And Nakagawa and Shah had a qualitative article that tried to compare two different disasters, the Kobe disaster and the Gujarat earthquake side by side, the degree to which social capital mattered in that process. The other, and I can't remember if I can get this right, was by, oh, Jirat. Maybe it was by Dyson. I'm saying he was an early founder in Delaware. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm, his name is escaping me right now. It'll come back to me after we stop talking properly. But it found his article, but this was from the 1970s. And those articles hadn't gotten much traction, at least when I began poking around you know, 15 years ago or so, back in 2005. I'm not much traction. I didn't really see, you know, the Red Cross talking about this. I didn't see the FEMA talking about this. When I was in Australia, NEMA wasn't talking about this. When I was in New Zealand, Remo wasn't talking about it. So all these organizations that I interacted with just to ask them, okay, so look, I think social capital matters. Is this at all part of what you do? Then you'd see really sad moments, like I, again, for in New Orleans, when social capital was actively damaged by existing public policies. One of, one of the worst ones that I saw was survivors of Hurricane Katrina being randomly put on buses and cars and literally driven the locations they had no idea where they're going. 
and they get off the bus in Arkansas, right? So here's someone who had a relationship with friends and neighbors and family, and maybe someone who didn't have uh, their own car, so maybe they didn't have a lot of money beforehand. And we just actively cut them off from the real resources they had of their network by putting them in a random place, right? That kind of thing, or same thing in Japan, by the way, in 1995, after the Kobe earthquake there, the Japanese authorities wanted to really help people get back on their feet as quickly as possible. So they evacuated as many people as possible out of the area, right? Put them in random places, buses, trains, as far away as they could. So what you had was hundreds of people, especially the people in their 60s, 70s, and 80s, who had networks beforehand, had friends, had doctors, had a routine. And now you've moved them away from everything that they know by themselves. The Japanese called the outcome kodokushi, or lonely deaths. Right, so here you have, again, good-intentioned, well-meaning policymakers trying to do their best during a disaster. Again, rapid evacuation from a vulnerable area. It sounds great on paper. What you've just done is you've just killed several hundred people in Japan's case, and maybe even more in New Orleans' case. So those are the kind of things I began seeing, again, trying to understand why hadn't this idea that our networks are a critical element of the recovery. I'll tell you another example that we saw in Japan. This was after the Fukushima nuclear meltdowns there. As you know, after the 311 disasters in March 2011, we had the earthquake, tsunami, and nuclear meltdowns. Three reactors melted down. 140,000 people had to evacuate. So colleagues and I began studying, we'd write speak Japanese, so we began studying the mental health recoveries for people from Futaba, which was about five kilometers from the meltdowns, over about a three or four year period. And we noticed that huge numbers of them had PTSD levels off the charts. Uh, we used a thing called the Kessler 6 or K6 index, very easy to answer and use questions. Like for example, over the past month, how often has it felt hard to get out of bed in the mornings? Or over the past month, how often has life felt meaningless to you, right? Very simple to answer. And what we found was individuals from this town who'd gone through the earthquake, tsunami, and meltdowns had the highest possible measurements of PTSD, of, of anxiety that we could find. Then we'd ask them questions like, okay, well, are there counselors nearby? Are there therapists nearby? Is there a chaplain or a rabbi, anyone nearby to talk to you? And the answer almost always was no. There's almost no investment in psychosocial first aid, in mental health care, not a top priority, right, after this major nuclear disaster. So again, you have all these disasters, Hurricane Katrina, Kobe, Fukushima meltdowns, and people not thinking through the degree to which the ties that we have matter so much. I'll just give you one more story and I'll stop talking about this, which is that, you know, oftentimes when I speak to decision makers about how they get ready for the next disaster, almost all of them men mentioned physical infrastructure, right? So for example, in Maui right now, we just had, literally had the fires this week. People are already talking about building back telecommunications better, building back water systems better, making sure there's a fire break or a firewall, right? All these kind of things is a great start. But we know what activated immediately, even though there was, for example, no siren activation by authorities, even though we know telecommunications were down, with neighbors knocking on the doors of neighbors, neighbors helping people get out of the dangerous areas, people bringing in food and supplies from other islands via boat on their own. Again, not a coordinated attempt from FEMA, just neighbors helping neighbors. So in those moments, again, what are we doing right actively right now? Not the building of fancy systems, not a new app for the phone, which by the way, if you remember in 2018, that app malfunctioned in Hawaii and predicted an incoming nuclear missile, right, from North Korea, right, that ballistic missile. So you know, these are apps that we so rely on, right, our phones, our technologies that we fall back on now without thinking, okay, I just moved here. Do I know my neighbors? Very simple questions. Do I know my neighbors' first and last names? Could I, for example, email them or text them if something went wrong with my community? Who needs a wheelchair to get around? Who can't walk out of their neighbor's house if there's a fire going on right now? Who has pets? It is very simple questions. Again, around the world that we found, many of us can't answer, especially those of us who live in urban areas, by the way, are some of the worst, right? We have neighbors often who move in for a year and move out, move out again. We're so busy with our own lives. 
So again, you know, the more time I spent in this field looking at the gap between under the literature on disasters and resilience, but then the policies we have in place to try and build them, the more I realized what an imbalance we have out there. Yeah, that's a fascinating history. I mean, so let's turn to today. I mean, we talked about government and policy and, and technologies. I mean, but what role can government play in terms of fostering the social capital? Yeah, so several things. You know, first, the first rule is just like in medicine, do no harm. So let's do a review of every policy that we have in place right now. For example, emergency evacuation shelter plans and housing plans. Are they just like we saw in Japan and in New Orleans? Are they individuals being bussed out or shipped out? Or do we ask people, okay, look, you just came here in the shelter. How many people are with you? How big is your group? Do you want to move together when you find an open apartment, an open FEMA trailer, an open permanent housing? How do you want to move? Ask them, right? Let them drive that process rather than just assuming that our only job is to get them out of there as quickly as possible. So first is do no harm. The second would be, are we making space for these social ties in all of our planning? So for example, when we're talking about new technologies, when we're talking about the next generation of seawalls or, or sirens or whatever else we're doing, to what degree are people on the ground actually engaged with us in that process, telling us what they want and need, right? Again, someone in their 60s, someone in their 40s, and someone in their 20s, right? And what they're going to need in that process, only they can tell us, rather than us telling them as experts, no, 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 I've got this under control. I'm going to divide an evacuation route for you, or you need this app to get out of here or whatever, a new seawall, new technology. So again, engaging them. The next thing is we try to do, and this is my lab's work, what can we do to actively build these social ties wherever we are? Right, so again, is it neighbor to neighbor? Is it, for example, in San Francisco right now, taking the idea of social capital seriously, every year they give out money to local neighborhoods to have a party. That's right. Your block party can be funded by your government. Why? Because San Francisco knows a huge earthquake is coming. They also know they can't stop the earthquake. They know they can't retrofit every building seismically to make it resilient to those earthquakes. So what can they do? They can build actively social capital. Even having a party in a neighborhood means I'll bring the chips, right? Kyle's going to bring the guacamole. Someone else will have to get the permit for the band. We've got to organize internally. And we see, okay, well, is Mrs. Smith showing up? How about Mrs. Tanaka? Right? How about Clarence next door? Like, we're watching during this party, who is coming, who isn't coming, who's showing they really can't plan very well or don't even know what's going on. So we're already keeping our eye in that process of building a party on the next shock that's coming. So San Francisco has this neighbor fest program I think is fantastic. I think Dan Holmesy is the, is the leader there in San Francisco. So again, what can they do in the city where they can help out communities build these ties? The next level up is building what I would call social infrastructure. These are the places and spaces in our community where we build these ties, right? It's not going to be, for example, on a Zoom call, as much as I like the Zoom calls, it's not going to be in my workplace because I know those people already, right? Oftentimes it's me taking my dog to the park. My dog gets in a fight with some other dog and I talk with the owner, right? Or I'm taking my children to the park or I take myself for a linear reserve stroll, or I, I go to a pub, or I head to a library, right? Those are moments when I'm meeting people in my community, learning to trust them and interact, maybe learning a new name, a new face. Those are the moments in those spaces and places and societies building the building blocks of future interactions. So are we supporting social infrastructure? For example, as we build Maui, are we building parks and benches and green spaces and linear, or are we building hotels for the tourists, you know, fancy new places, or our developers buying up, you know, 45-story buildings, right, for their next income. So again, we can think through carefully when we build or rebuild our communities, to what degree are we making them ones where social ties can be easily built? I always think about Jane Jacobs, right, the dean of this field for the 1960s who said a long time ago, a city's job is not being efficient. A robot's job is being efficient. A city's job is giving us space to interact, even in ways we hadn't planned, right? So I'm walking outside, I stop for a coffee, I see someone looks vaguely familiar, I say, hi, I'm Daniel, what's your name again? Oh, right. I saw you at that Little League game last week. What's going on? 
where are you from? And those are the kind of interactions that she recognized 60 years ago, 70 years ago. That is going to drive the next time I meet that person, I, I see someone else, the trust that I'm building, the likelihood of interacting with them. And I can just say, to fast forwarding this conversation to the end, we've done a lot of research recently, and this is my new book project, on social infrastructure. To what degree do these places and spaces change the trajectories of earthquakes and disasters? But I can show you in a paper I just published, it has 700 neighborhoods with different levels of social infrastructure, some with a lot per capita, some with almost none. Those communities that had more social infrastructure controlling for all kinds of other factors had better recoveries and better survival rates during that same disaster in areas that were less connected through their libraries, parks, children's centers, after-school programs, and so forth. So again, this is not some nam-pambi idea, oh, kumbaya, yeah, we shall feel good. No, no. We actually have evidence in the same way that we can measure economic outcomes, we can measure mortality. The same way that we can measure demographic outcomes, we can measure social ties and social capital. So this is not some nam-pambi idea that we should hold hands. This is a policy data-driven idea that we should be building our societies, building our post-disaster recoveries, and what really does help us get better. I have so many questions. <laughs> I'll start with a couple of points here, like, because I think the everything that you're saying is valid. It's the way I grew up when I think when we're all in a certain age demographic, you know, and let's just say generation X, right? You're coming from this generation. You were outside all day anyway. And everything that you're saying is also counterintuitive to the use of technology. So if we are now at a point of where we have gone through the past of sort of living in that environment that you're talking about, knowing your neighbors, people knock on doors, you go outside, you meet people, you stay out all day, you're doing things and interacting with the communities to a point of the heavy industrialized use of technology, the loss of that social capital, and then now having to almost in a certain way formally come back and try and reinvent this and implement this through design in our cities. And I think that's just crazily ironic. It's, it's come to that to a certain extent. When we talk about technologies though, and this is where it comes to technology. So we're not obviously going to just put down all our phones in the world and turn off the internet. My first question is, how do we find balance between these things? You mentioned one program, such as, you know, having your community, you know, block parties and things like that. And I have questions about that too, but I guess my first thing is, how do we find balance between the use of technology and building social capital? The second question being, when you have these types of programs that foster social capital in communities, are those also integrated at a policy level with cities and administrations? So then people are going out, say, from the Office of Emergency Management and talking about, you know, a, you know, realize it's not necessarily 24 hours, it's 72 hours, maybe not even 72 hours. You probably got to be able to survive a week or two, you know, and having those types of conversations, raising awareness at the same time of trying to also build social capital. So a couple of questions for you there. Yeah. So technology is a great point, right? Certainly, you know, I have four kids. All four of them are on their phones far more than I feel comfortable with, including when I'm talking typically... I'm trying to talk to them during dinner, right? So those are the moments. Yes, of course, I think the new generation is not going to put it down. But that means then when thinking about social capital and social infrastructure, for them, those online places, for my youngest son, it might be a gaming space, right? It might be Roblox or Mine, whatever it's called, Mine. I just forgot the name of the other game he plays, right? Those games, right, where they do this collectively, that might be where he's building his connections and ties. Maybe not to local people necessarily. Maybe they are from his school right, from people further away. So yes, absolutely, digital spaces, it'd be a WhatsApp group or a Facebook affinity group. We have to take them seriously, right? And by the way, I would point out that many, first of all, no no organizations that I know are on things like TikTok, which is where all the younger people are, right? They're on Facebook, they're sort of the state or organizations, you know, FEMA's on TikTok and so forth. But again, we have to go where people are. And TikTok and those other places, Instagram, that's where we should be pushing our organizations to think, to what degree are we actually engaging with people of different demographics? So yes, we need to have those social infrastructure in, in digital spaces, those virtual communities, and also for the very elderly, 
right? So people who are older than 65, for them, they also might be using Facebook. They might be using WhatsApp in a way. Ironically, my youngest kids also do it, which is they don't go out as much. It's too hot these days. Where my, my parents live in North Carolina, which is very hot outside right now. So they don't feel comfortable going outside for a walk. So maybe they're going to get online and then have their event going to be online, right? Rather than being in person. So that's one set. Yes, technology, absolutely part of it. For the rest of us, though, who are not quite between our, let's say, late 60s and, and, and late teens, we do have neighbors, whether we're a homeowner or a renter. And those relationships are critical. I can just talk about my own neighborhood here in Brighton, where I live. We had a house fire, not even 30 feet behind us. And well before the fire truck arrived, it's a very narrow street and they couldn't get on. All our neighbors activated, knocked on all the doors, make sure people were out. Someone dislocated a shoulder. Everyone heard, went to their house immediately to help them out. One of my neighbors went unconscious. We got through the window. So these are sort of mundane activities, mundane disasters, not this large scale shock. But again, in those moments, we need to have connections. I should have a neighbor's key. They should know my last name. They should know what my kids look like. You know, and this is a very simple thing, right? How do you know someone's neighbor house isn't being broken into if you don't recognize your neighbor's face? Right. So that's the starting point. Yes, we need to have digital, but we also need to have the analog connections. Um, as for building social capital and integrating it, there are some cities that are doing this. I can talk about Cambridge, Massachusetts, not too far from me. They do a great job now of, of mapping social capital as part of what they do in their city, not just mapping demographics or social vulnerability, which is kind of the old school way. This is the Susan Cutter stuff, right, from the 1980s. Social vulnerability is, you know, do you have someone who is from another country speaking which is a second language? Are they elderly? I don't think that's enough anymore. I don't think social vulnerability is sufficient to capture what's going on. There are plenty of programs for people over 65 who are not vulnerable, right? Or probably people who speak English as a second language who are not vulnerable. It's those people who are, let's say, over 65 and alone. And this is Eric Kleinenberg's work, right? A heat wave. That's the intersection that we have to be worried about. So we have to move beyond vulnerability in our mapping to actually capture social ties and social infrastructure. So making mapping a part of your city's work. Do you know where the cold spots are of individuals who are isolated and alone? If we don't, it's a problem. Those are the individuals you'd be worrying about during heat waves, during floods, right? Those are people during Maui's fire who didn't have neighbors knocking on their doors to get them out. Same thing in the tsunami in 2011 in Japan. Individuals living in communities that were well connected, they didn't survive as well because they didn't have neighbors who came to help them get out before the tsunami arrived. So first thing is, are we mapping? Our local government is our regional government involved in helping us map these things. Next, we absolutely can integrate things like neighbor fest, block parties, civic engagement, faith-based organizations, VOADs, right? These are all things we can actively choose. You know, some, I've seen a few emergency disaster management people who really do one-way communication, right? They get on whatever it is, a radio, they get on a thing and they blast out emails, which, which is great. It's, it's a form of communication, but that's not really what we've seen as the apex, which is like REMO, W-R-E-M-O, their Wellington Regional Emergency Management Organization, and they're in Wellington, New Zealand. They spend a third of their time outside the office embedded in 4-H groups, Kiwanis groups, Lions groups, after-school groups, mosques, they go to those groups and sit there during their meetings just so their faces are known and their plans are known. And by being there consistently, they've built up tremendous trust. One-tenth of the internet in that community goes through their webpage now. Not because there's huge disasters, but because people trust them as a people people who know them really, really well. So again, here are ways to integrate this concept of social ties matter, social infrastructure matters. We're going to engage in that infrastructure, not just one-way communication, but actually get involved. We're going to go to pubs. We're going to go to zoning board meetings. We're going to go to the church and synagogue and mosque and gudwara. We're going to spend that time getting to know our community rather than sitting back in my office, you know, sending out those communiques. And one more thing is, is design. Again, as we think about our cities and as we have zoning rules under our control, what are we doing to build, again, livable, walkable, engaging communities? Where again, it's not that we're in a suburb where there's no library, there's no park, there's no dog walking zone, no linear area. People can get together. You know, there's no shade right? We have a lot of control over how things are done with zoning. That is a local government, local civil society issue. 
but absolutely this concept of, are we building a community resilient to shocks? Do we have evacuation routes? Do we have information? Do we have block stewards engaged with civil society? Do we have those linking ties between communities and the decision makers? So I've seen this done really, really well. I mentioned San Francisco already. I mentioned Wellington. I mentioned Cambridge. There are plenty of cities around the world that are taking seriously the idea that to be resilient to disaster means more than just, do you have a phone or do you have three days of water individualizing the problem? Rather, is it your community engaged? Do people in the community know each other, horizontal connections? Are they helping each other get ready for that shock that is coming, whether it's a heat wave or a flood or a fire like in Maui? Are we making sure that we're thinking and talking about that disaster rather than just saying, oh no, that's not really for us. You know, We're a little bit busy right now. So in terms of the data, if somebody in the audience is, is working in their office of emergency management, maybe they're not in one of these cities that have sort of invested in the social capital perspective, but how would they go about starting to, to map this out and measuring social capital in their own community? Yeah. The, the first thing is I always begin by telling them, find allies, right? No emergency disaster management person has the time to get a, a master's degree or whatever in you know social capital mapping. That's not their job. Start by talking to people like me in your community. Right, whether it's a community college, whether it's a four-year college, a public school, a, a private school, wherever you are, start engaging with social workers, sociologists, geographers. These are all people who often have students who need to do work anyway. We've had great success actually working with high school and college students, helping us map out parts of Boston. So again, rather than thinking, oh my gosh, I can't do this, I'm so busy already, who are the allies out there, right? So begin thinking, okay, convince people above me in the pay grades above me what they should be doing to help me get funding, support, resources to map it. What do I need? How far does the community extend? How granular can I get? Can it be every community at least and not every person? Okay, great. We get 10% of every community, right? And then we have great stuff online already at my website and elsewhere. There's a thing called the Social Capital Index, right? Soci, S-O-C-I. Social Capital Index, we have a bunch of ways there of capturing it using publicly available data. We can also give suggestions to people. What would you want to do to measure this? Um, FEMA has been talking about social capital mapping as well. So again, the first thing to do is find allies in your administration who think yes, Right? It's not a question about vulnerability anymore. It's going beyond that. What kind of connections do people have? Help them read stuff, right? Give them ex excerpts from Eric Klenenberg's heat wave, right? Talking about the so many hundreds of people who died in Chicago, right, in the 1990s, or the things we're seeing in Maui right now, where we're hearing neighbors helping neighbors escape. Again, this is not some abstract concept. This is what we need to be doing. So that's the first thing. Find allies. Mapping, again, a lot of communities have been doing this. Use peer-to-peer -peer assistance, people like me, social scientists out there in the field. And the mapping, then you think, okay, I've, I've discovered three cold spots, right? And who knows, maybe it's the wealthiest community you have, but no one talks to each other because they have long driveways, a gated community, right? And garages in front of their cars. And at the end of the day, there's no walking around their neighborhood for them. It's all in their home by themselves. So, okay, then you know now where those resources should go. Where do we invest now in those community fest, neighbor fest events? How do we make sure people there know what's going on? We have people in the community who can be stewards and block captains, people who can take charge and, and pay people know what's going on. So I think mapping is the very first stage to know what you need to do, where you need to do it, and then start thinking through how do we intensify the connections that we have there to build trust, to build interactions. You know, a simple thing like, you know, how many libraries per square mile or per square community, right? How many pubs, how many things? And again, this, this is, we, we've done this in our, in our lab before, other communities have mapped this as well. You know, this data is available, but again, it's going to take an ally to help you build that connection, build that map and see, oh, you're right. This community was a suburb. There's no library, there's no park, there's no shade. People aren't probably leaving their homes. What happens when the power goes out and no one has any electricity and it's 110 degrees? What's going to happen there right now? And if you want to get people organized, where are we going to meet? Right? There's no physical space there where we can have this kind of broader connection. So those are the kind of questions we should be asking right now in peacetime. You know, Maui has this tremendous tragedy, at least 100 dead. 
but they also have a little bit of pausing right now before the recovery begins. How can Maui build a resilient community? Not just the fires, by the way, that's the, an old school, like one hazard approach. We'll be thinking whatever comes in the future, we want our community to be resilient, right? That requires these horizontal and vertical connections. That means whether it's going to be COVID 2024 or whether it's going to be a fire or a flood or Godzilla, we want to have our communities connected to each other and decision makers before that arrives. We need to start now. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And when we're talking about mapping, though, I can't help but think mostly because we work in the international space, but the impact of culture and sort of measuring social capital. And so how do cultural differences affect social capital and disaster recovery? Yeah, it's funny. I get the question a lot. You know, I do a lot of work in East Asia. I also do a lot of work in the Gulf Coast. And I would say it's, it's certainly there in the background, but to most of us in the field, I would say it's not the biggest concern we should be having, Right. In the same way that, let's say, your organization and mine are different bureaucratic cultures, and maybe my dinner and your dinner look quite different in the way we, our kids and I interact. Maybe yours are respectful, they listen to you and you have that time together. Mine are not so much, right? So those are cultural differences. But at the end of the day, what's going to matter a lot more than the culture in my household or our organization is going to be trust, engagement, right? Those long-term behaviors of, do I know people nearby and feel comfortable working with them? To me, that's much more important than thinking, okay, I'm working in state X or community Y, Ideally, by the way, this is part of the idea of having a steward or a captain. If you're mapping a community that you don't know as well, let's say for fun, I'm in New Zealand. We have a bunch of people coming over from Syria and Afghanistan who speak Pashtun and Arabic as a first language. I don't. So I want someone who can communicate with us to have these connections, right? So I need to find a local leader, a local local steward, a local captain who can take on that work, right? And do that work together with me. But I would say for, for those of us working in the disaster space, this idea of culture maybe is pushing us too far not to do stuff. Well, I really can't do that. The culture won't let us. Well, culture is a very malleable thing. I think about North American culture in 2023, what's acceptable right now. I was just on a, at a movie theater just yesterday. People had their shoes off and their feet up on the seat in front of me. Now, when my parents were growing up, that would have been throw you out of the movie theater offense. It looked pretty normal where I was sitting. They weren't my feet, by the way, someone else's feet. So that's the kind of thing. Our culture changes all the time. So I'm not sure that culture is the first thing I'd worry about. I'd really more about to what degree do we know the community well enough to go in and spend that time together? Right, to, to what degree do I understand the ability of them to listen to me and be to have them trust me? Have you ever been there before? This is how I started. The culture is this about, do they know me? Do, can they trust me? Do I look and sound like them? If not, maybe that's a bigger question. Can I hire staff? For example, if I'm working in a primarily community of color and I'm not a person of color, why don't I have people of color on my staff working with me, right? Or if, if Vietnamese is the first language in parts of Village to Leste in New Orleans, I better have someone who speaks Vietnamese, right? So this is on me, really, in a sense, not the cultural aspect, but more like the ability to connect. So one of the things that I think about when I think of culture and some of our international work and, and where I maybe distinguish between the two is in many of the communities that we've been working in, international space, you know, they're very for, sort of family centric, right? So you have these generational households, you know, parents on the bottom floor, the kids, and then, you know, sort of the house gets bigger as the family gets bigger and they add another floor to the house. And that's just something you don't necessarily see, I think, as part of the culture in the United States. You you see basically, you know, grow up and get out of the house and get out on your own. And that's sort of, so there's a disbursement of family. Whereas in many other countries, there's just this, you know, this generational approach to families and living together and things like that. And I think that inherently is a strength in terms of social capital because, you know, everybody's there in one location. You're not dispersed. People can help each other and things like that. So it, this is one thing that I would sort of consider as being, it's not an obstacle, but I think it's just a differentiator between sort of the cultures and how social capital has developed and maintained. Now, one could argue that even though if you move out of the house, you still have close connections, you can still support each other. And maybe you're down the street or you're 10 minutes away, 
you know, that's all fine. But I think just in, in the approach to that and sort of that generational family aspect has a, a positive impact overall. Yeah. And I think that's the kind of thing you'd want to know, right? Because that's where you're working. Actually, it's funny in Japan, we have this image of Japan as tightly integrated intergenerational, right? Where we have multiple generations. The reality is most people that I know don't live with their parents. A lot of parents in Japan are being placed into older folks' homes. And that's elder daycare during the day, rather than, for example, living with them at home, which I've seen in Italy when I used to live in Milan, right? So a lot of people in Italy, they're even 20s and 30s are still living at home with their kids. So I think that's a great point, right? So you'd want to know, okay, I'm designing a household experience or a survey or some kind of training exercise. I'd want to make sure the grandparents, the center generation and the kids are all involved. But for me, the bigger question would be, okay, great. To what degree do those intergenerational families know their neighbors, right? To what degree do they trust local responders or firefighters or police officers? How much information do they have about what's going on? Who would they call if there's a problem? Do they trust the police often enough to call them, right? And again, depending on where you are in North America, at least, then it should be quite different. You know, we know from our research here in Boston, there's some communities that don't call 911. There's a problem because they don't trust the police. And again, that is a cultural thing that's come out from history. It's something that we can also change, right? To what degree are we showing now that we recognize that there are these problems here? So I think it's a good point, right? We do need to recognize household composition is different. Intergenerational work is different. But at the same day, it's we need to know how that family is interacting with families nearby. How much trust do they have in the system? A contact with people above, you know, and again, how much knowledge do they have about the system? That's something that culture really can't dictate ahead of time. So when we talk about, in this case, we're using an example of sort of the fires in Hawaii and, and things like that. And we're talking about these recent disasters. We talked about recovery we, and sort of the planning effort that we need to pause and consider, for example, what businesses and organizations will contribute to that, whether it's going to be a high rise or if it's going to be community park or something or a library. Specifically, do businesses and organizations have in terms of contributing to building social capital, especially in a period of like now, after a wildfire, and they're in this, I think, a very unique period before they start to recover? Yeah, I think you know, there's a great writing is on the importance of local businesses as entrepreneurs, not just entrepreneurs for business, but social entrepreneurs. During disaster, there's a great book by Virtual Store on this in New Orleans. And I think, you know, certainly in Maui and elsewhere, businesses may have a really strong anchor to the community. They want to come back and serve their clients. They've been there for maybe decades, if not generations, and this is where they want to go, even if it's going to cost them months or years of opportunity costs to be there and rebuild and wait for the client base, wait for tourists to return, wait for things to be, quote, normal again in the future. So I think those businesses should be front and center, and we want them, or those local businesses to be front and center, not, for example, outside real estate speculators, you know, international currency purchasers, people looking for a real estate investment from their retirement funds in some other country. We want it to be locals who live there who drive that, right? And we've seen this with Airbnb and other outcomes. We know this from the data, right? That when communities become ones driven by outside investment, other than locally based investment, and we can talk about community currencies, for example, but they keep that local, right? Local based businesses that are not an international chain or a licensee, but really local businesses driven by locals, run by locals for locals. In those cases, money circulates in the community rather than going back to some shareholder or some stakeholder elsewhere. So yes, businesses have a huge role to play in this process as do faith-based organizations in the community as to civil society. And in that planning process, we want to think through, right, which voices will dominate. We've done research on a number of post-disaster committees, and you can probably guess males, engineers, and elite tend to dominate these committees afterwards rather than local, bottom-up, gender-balanced, non-engineers, not business people, and this voice is not to be heard, which is too bad, right? Because the reality is, again, Maui, or in this case, Lahaina, right? These communities are not, they're not, you know, 80 million people or 30 million people or 20 million people, but thousands of people. And the way the community is structured will strongly impact do people want to come back? It's a lot of interesting research called the Reconstruction Paradox. This is by a guy named Nagamatsu Shingo in Japan. He pointed out actually what we found in data, the more big projects that you build, 
large-scale dams, roads, berms, huge construction projects, developments, the slower the recovery often goes. Because local citizens on the ground waiting for their favorite barista, waiting for their kids' school to reopen, waiting for the house to be built, they don't really care. And if there's a new 14-lane highway there or a new port or a dam, they want to know, again, are my friends there? Is there a sense of connection? Is there a sense of place? So Nagamatsu pointed out that oftentimes what we think are a very helpful process of big spending, often top-down government spending, has very little to do with the recovery experience on the ground and much more to do with, again, the economics, the political economy of recovery. Think about Naomi Klein's disaster capitalism, right? Big firms benefiting from this. So really be quite careful in this moment, right? Before anything starts, as we're still now hopefully finding all those who are deceased, upping the mourning process, taking a breath, having those conversations, even if it takes time. And I think this is the other thing we have to talk about. Sometimes our push is let's get back as quickly as we can to what was. We don't want to build back what was, right? It's clear Lahaina, Maui, very vulnerable to fire, probably also vulnerable to flooding. How do we build a resilient community right now that's for the people? And again, not for large construction companies, not for, I'm not going to name them because we're going on a podcast here, but large firms that profit, right, from a large scale shock. We want to make sure the businesses who live there, the business people who live there, the residents who live there, we want them to be on the front lines, right, of the process of deciding what happens and then staying there. What we don't want to happen is to rebuild Maui or to rebuild Lahaina for some community at some demographic, like for the tourists who come in for a few days and leave again, or for developers who build a massive 40-story apartment complex and rent them all out to outsiders. Right? We want to make sure the community is being built for the people who live there. And we see this all the time, by the way, in New Orleans as well. Oftentimes, expensive rebuilding means gentrification, which we're pricing out locals from the community. So we want to make sure we take that pause, take a breath before we begin rebuilding to make sure what kind of community is being built is being discussed at least before we start doing anything. I think those are all great points. And I, I think there's a lot to be said for restoring people's ability to return home, just restoring the communities after a disaster and getting to a degree of normalcy before you start really progressing and trying to build the version two of your community. So I, I think what a lot of people look for, at least immediately on the, at the outset of, of recovering from a disaster, is just some form of a return to normalcy in their lives because they've gone through such a shock, right? And that doesn't mean that you have to have these massive plans for rejuvenation and revitalization of a community to execute from day one or disaster plus one, right? It can go through phases of and sort of what you're talking about, like have those conversations, pause, take a break, restore the community, start bringing things back together, and then build upon and create a, a more you know safer communities in, in the future. It doesn't just have to be, you know, like you said, massive construction projects from, from day one. And there's oftentimes this push to be able to do that, and especially in the international space as well. So it's not just in the United States, but, you know, well, we'll just sweep in with all this money and start changing things. And look, you've got all this brand new stuff and this brand new building, but it's a replacement. It's not a restoring sort of the life of the, the people in the community. Those are all great points. I think we could probably talk about this at depth, but we are going in depth, but we are going a little bit long. And so where can people find your book? So you mentioned that you actually, from what I understand, you have three books. One is called Site Fights, which was focused on how states handle conflict over controversial facilities, facilities like nuclear power plants, airports, and dams. You have a second book, which is called Building Resilience from the University of Chicago, and which investigated how social capital facilitates recovery following disasters. And your third book is Black Wave. 2019 from University of Chicago Press showing how horizontal and vertical ties are critical to helping people survive and thrive in crisis. And I think those are would be all very interested reading and, and highly recommended. And so where can people find these books? My favorite phrase is wherever books are sold, Amazon sells them, for example, I believe Barnes and Noble as well. You know, I'm a big fan of local retailers. So if you have a local bookstore there in town, I believe they can get them as well. So, and also the nice thing about them is because 
I've really encouraged the publishers to try and reduce the prices. So sometimes these Kindle versions are available for less than $5, which is great, really affordable. I don't want books that are 115 or whatever. So these are affordable books. But again, some public libraries also have them as well. So again, if you're interested, please just Google my name and uh, those books will pop up. Okay, great. Yeah, absolutely. Support your communities. And if anybody has any questions or maybe they're in the field and they want to start looking at how they can measure social capital in their communities, how can people reach you? Yeah. So my favorite public forum for discussion right now is the, the site formerly known as Twitter. I believe it's called X these days. Who knows? It'll be called Y tomorrow. I'm not really quite sure why it's called X or Times as my kids call it. Uh, so the Times website, I'm there. My Twitter handle is Daniel P. Aldrich. I'm on, on that site. My email address is also pretty much public knowledge. It's my name, d.aldrich, A-L-D-R-I-C-H at northeastern.edu. And happy to answer questions. Again, if people want to talk about you know, this idea of mapping, this idea of you know, looking at social infrastructure rates and such, we're always curious to do how what we can. And again, I would also say happy to think about ways to build allies, right? So if you're in San Francisco, for example, San Francisco State University, Stanford, Berkeley, a lot of communities nearby. So happy to talk about ways to build those allies for disaster managers who are looking for help. Okay, great. Well, that's all the time we have for today's episode of the Crisis Conflict Emergency Management Podcast. I want to give a huge thank to our guest, Professor Daniel Aldridge, for his time and sharing his valuable insights on social capital and disaster recovery. It was truly an honor to have you on the show. Thank you very much for joining us today. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in. If you have any feedback or suggestions for future episodes, please don't hesitate to reach out to us on our website or social media channels. And if you like the topics and discussions, please share and leave a review on your favorite podcast player. Until next time, stay safe and keep learning.